you know, as a as any young girl, you you see all the movies of uh, they live happily ever after, and you have the husband and the children, and everybody's happy. And I thought that that's what I would have, and I had the ingredients, but it just never cooked out to be the real thing. My marriage was full of verbal abuse, walking on eggshells, but wanting so bad for it to work. I had the five-bedroom home um, in the suburbs, you know. Everything looked like it was great, um, but it was hollow. It was empty. I couldn't have loved anyone any harder than I loved my ex-husband. After five or ten years, uh, somewhere along the line, he stopped liking me and he let me know in every part of his being that I annoyed him. I didn't make enough money, I didn't keep the house clean, like, you're supposed to have pine salt in. What, is that so hard? I'm to this, I'm to that. He wouldn't even say hi or how are you. It was just like, you're home. You try to smile and act like everything is fine and that you're happy and, and when you're just slowly dying inside. When I saw my son say, when I get bigger, mommy, when I get bigger, all I could hear in his little voice is that, mommy, I'm, I'm going to protect you. And I was like, you're three. You're not supposed to try to protect your, your mom. I'll never forget Maya Angelou saying that, does your face light up when, um, when your child comes in the room? And that was important for me um, to make sure my son knew that when he walked in the room that he was loved, that my face lighted up, that his father's face lit up, and that just was not happening no matter what I did. And I'm sorry. After he'd been gone for about a year, we were going through the divorce procedures and it got ugly. Um, I realized that, wow, I'm gonna have to do this by myself. The fear of trying to raise a black male in this society by myself on my income um, was fearful, real fearful. I was in church and we were talking about where you have God, your husband, your wife and your children, and I'm in there thinking, I don't have all that. You know, what am I gonna do? And then he said, Jesus, Jesus will feel your brokenness, whatever. He'll be your father, he'll be your husband, he'll be whatever is missing. And I mean, I cried out because I didn't realize how bad I was hurting and and how much I of lost I was feeling. I don't know how it's going to end. I don't know um, where my life is going to be, but I know that I have a Savior that is, he's he's awesome. Nothing has changed. Um, 
I'm, I'm still at a job that I work too long, not, not getting the pay that I think I deserve. I still have this car that, thank God, is still running. It has over 257 miles on it, and I would love a new car, but it is so not in the budget. I'm one that's living paycheck to paycheck, but I'm so happy. If you have him first in your life, everything will be okay. Everything. Your heart, your soul, your family. It may not be the family that you thought you were going to have. It may not be what you had envisioned. But when you start looking at him first, everything else, everything else falls into place. I am second. Jesus and others first, and you second. If you were going to sum up the book of Philippians, that's about it. Christ is first, and I'm second. And everything in our life is actually secondary to knowing Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who not only suffered, but died for us, and then was resurrected to new life, and now wants to live through us. So that our pain on earth actually might have a purpose and we might know hope in hard times. I want to welcome you to Liquid. I'm Pastor Tim, and I want to welcome you to part three of our current series, Prison Break, Joy in Hard Times. And we've been hearing from a lot of you who have been going through a lot of serious stuff. There's a lot of hardship going on in our congregation. I was talking with our campus pastors this week, and uh, there are couples here at Liquid who are going through hard times in their marriage, going through real struggles right now. And uh, maybe you can relate to Shauna's story. Um, there are others of you who are, you're putting your life back together uh, in the wake of divorce, hard times. Uh, many single folks actually enduring a depth of, of loneliness that is really difficult to overstate. In many ways, there's a lot of hard times through all of our campuses. I was talking with one of our volunteers last week, young woman who lost her job, and I wish that were a unique situation, but it's not. She's the latest in a string of, of many of our people who are facing unemployment and an uncertain future in the wake of this downturn. Um, Colleen and I have friends who their house is being foreclosed upon. They, they can't even believe it. And then there are just a myriad of health concerns, I mean, that are just average to, not average, I mean, they're extraordinary when they hit your life. I talked with a friend last week right here after the 11 o'clock service, and, and he said, you know, I was diagnosed last week with prostate cancer. And you're right, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Another couple who were first time visiting, and the young mom was diagnosed with leukemia. And I mention all of that not to bum you out, but to say, you're not alone. You are not alone. In many ways, suffering and hardship is a reality for all of us. And we're just admitting the truth. That hardship, whether it's physical, emotional, or spiritual, sometimes has a way of locking us up in a prison all its own. You can be locked up in a prison of pain, makes us feel like life is hopeless, this is all there is. Or we're shackled in that prison of pity that Pastor Tom talked about last week. No one could possibly know what I'm going through, and, and we begin feeling, feeling kind of sorry for ourselves, and then our world closes in even smaller because pain gets us to focus on me first, and, and Jesus and others kind of disappear from our, our viewfinder. 
And then you come to Philippians, which in bold defiance of both pain and pity is this spiritual phenomenon we see that Paul talks about called joy, which is this kind of defiant hope and trust that kind of radiates from his letter written from prison. I mean, Paul's a guy who knew hardship. We went over 2 Corinthians last week, right? He endured multiple beatings, danger, torture, loneliness, poverty, hunger, you name it. And now he's under lock and key in a Roman prison. And yet he writes with apparent sincerity, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. The first Hallmark card from Eastern State Penitentiary in Rome. It's kind of like, how do you say rejoice? When marriage or your relationship or your job or, or, or your savings is going down the tubes. I mean, is this just another one of those kind of, you know, Christian naive Pollyanna bumper stickers? Don't worry, be happy, you know. Not at all. Paul's, Paul's teaching us what we're learning is that joy is actually a posture of the heart when suffering touches down in your life. It, 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 it's a much more defiant and much more surrendered way of living that says, no matter what's happening in my life, I am second, and Christ is first. And because my God suffered for me on a cross, the worst the world had to offer, he paid for my sins, he purchased my salvation, I now have hope beyond what I'm currently going through. I have hope. This isn't all there is. Because I may be hurting, but I can trust that whatever is happening to me right now, he's working for my ultimate good, even when I can't see it. I have hope for the future. Not just in this life, but in eternity, where we are actually promised Jesus will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has what? Has passed away. Our future is filled with hope. And we know it's not just this pie in the sky and the sweet by and by kind of cross your fingers kind of hope, but it is a gritty real world hope grounded firmly in the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ, the cross. That's Paul's secret. That whatever it is I'm going through, it's a fraction, a shadow of what Christ himself went through for me voluntarily out of love. That, that's what the cross is. People sometimes wonder, they, they use all sorts of fancy words about what happens, substitutionary atonement. You want to break down the theology? Here's what the cross is. It's God saying, I love you this much. And I would rather die than live without you. And I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you if you trust in me. Suffering isn't all there is. It's not it. Because Jesus suffered the absolute worst that this world has to offer, whatever you're going through, he can relate. Did you know that God can relate to what you're going through? More than that, because Jesus rose again, we can be sure he is now with us in the midst of hard times, and he will be with us to the very end when he will make everything new. That's the hope That's Easter. That's the joy that Paul radiates in his letter from prison to the Philippians. And and here's the deal. You can't explain it. You can't explain it. Because joy transcends circumstances. Remember, we're, we're learning happiness depends on happenings. 
But joy depends on who? On Christ. They are fundamentally different things. That is why Shauna, the single mom you just heard from, she could describe her circumstances this way. She said, my marriage was full of verbal abuse, walking on eggshells, but wanting so bad for it to work. And she said, I had the five-bedroom home in the suburbs. Everything looked like it was great, but it was hollow. It was empty. I couldn't have loved anyone any harder than I loved my ex-husband. And, you know, left as a single mom to raise a a single son and all that entails, the long hours, the struggling to make ends meet, right? And the, the loss of her dream for how it should be. She could still what? Rejoice. I mean, that, that is what her face, it just radiates joy. Because only after everything in her world fell apart did she discover the man who could truly embrace her as she is. He's been there. He can relate. And he says, I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. I have loved you. I have died for you. And I will now be with you, in you, to the end. Overpowering evidence of love in the midst of hardship. At rock bottom, I mean, this woman discovered a Savior. She discovered a Savior who suffered like her and for her. And that became the source of something you can't take from her. Joy. Her circumstances didn't change. I love that about her testimony. But her heart was transformed. This is what she said. She said, nothing has changed. I'm still in a job. I work two long hours, not getting the pay I deserve. I still got this car, 257,000 miles on it. Still living paycheck to paycheck, but I'm so happy. If you have him first in your life, everything will be okay. And then she says, your heart, your soul, your family. It may not be the family you thought you were going to have. It may not be what you had envisioned. But when you start looking at him first, everything else does what? It falls into place. Christ first, I am number two. Second. Happiness depends on happenings. Joy depends on Christ. That's how you cope with loss. That, that's, how you, that's how you cope with the loss of a dream. That's how you experience joy in hard times. And I don't know what you're going through. <laughs> but I wanted to encourage you today because you're not alone. Here at Liquid, our church is full. We, 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 you're sitting right now amidst a family of people, broken people, imperfect people, who are learning the joy of being second <laughs> and putting Christ first and, and, and others first. And you know what he's doing? He's putting us back together. Together, literally, all of us. In fact, I want to do this. All of our campuses, can we all just stand up for a moment? Go ahead, stand up where you are. Just stand up. I want to read something together. I want us to read out loud Paul's words here in Philippians chapter 3. Big loud voice. We're going to read this in unison, confirming what we believe. These are words of hope. These are words of incredible surrender. Read aloud with me. This is Philippians 3, verse 8. It says this, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's be seated. Be seated. That'll be our prayer to God today. If you're new to our church, 
and you're checking out what it means to what this Jesus thing is all about. Here, th- this is it. Okay, this is it. It, 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 ain't, it ain't religion. Religion is man-made or man-made attempts to kind of fix our life through our own strength or our own savvy and our schemes. This is cross-centered Christianity, where the whole idea is you surrender your mess to the one who made you. And the only one who can put it back together and actually change you from the inside out and give you a new heart, give you new desires and a new hope, that's Jesus Christ, our our Lord. So let me invite you to do this. Would you take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. It's on page 815. And the reason really that we say, I am second, Christ is first, is because it's it's really the only way out of the prison of self. Paul wrote, he said, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. In other words, he died to give us new life, and now we are to die to actually be a source of life and healing in the world around us. In other words, Paul's kind of like, when you look at the cross, this thing was so world-changing, it should have the effect of opening our eyes to who God is now putting in our lives to serve in Jesus' name. And and as we look outward, it has a way of kind of emptying ourselves from ourselves, right? As Paul wrote, he said, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of who? Of others. In other words, it shifts our focus about 45 degrees from our pain, our story, our circumstances, to how can God use this to serve the others that he's putting in my path. And folks, this is what transforms heartache into heart change. This is a picture of my brother Ted and his wife Sarah. They live in San Francisco. He's a little bit older. I got bigger hair. And, uh, and they're, 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 we're, we're close, but they live on the other coast. And a couple of years ago, my brother and his wife went through the hardship of actually suffering two miscarriages. And those of you moms who've gone through that, you know what that's like. It's something you kind of suffer through in isolation all alone. And it was devastating to them, but not as devastating because they went to the doctor, actually, and, um, and through a battery of tests, learned that they actually have a chromosomal abnormality that makes it impossible for them to have children. And they were given the diagnosis of infertility um, just about a year and a half ago. And um, that's devastating. They went through a lot of grief and, uh, and despair in, 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 in mourning that lasts. And uh, counseling helped. Uh, they pray, prayer helped. They, had, they have Christian friends. They're in a, in a life group, and, and they closed in around them and, and comforted them and just kind of loved my brother and Sarah through that. But it was really last year where they began turning their focus outward. And uh, one day as they were walking down the street there in their neighborhood in San Francisco, God just, just broke their heart with how many street kids there were all around in their neighborhood. They live in a, an area called the Tenderloin uh, District. And, uh, and there are kids all over the place. And my brother, I remember first saying to me, he said, when we were unable to have kids ourselves, we want to know what to do with the love that God placed in our hearts and where to direct that. Where there is an absence of love. And he said there are over 12,000 children, he went on to learn, living in San Francisco without fathers. And so they got involved in a ministry called City Impact. And, and these are some of the kids that they, they love on and that they work with and they treat as their own. 
where they have now helped fund a school that has a rescue mission and a food bank and, and a kids program. And over Christmas, we sat, we were, <laughs> I saw them in Atlantic City of all places. I don't know what we were doing down there. But we were having dinner and, and the, the joy that radiated out of their face as they told me about these kids. has brought more joy and purpose to my brother and sister, not in spite of the hardship of infertility, but through it. You catch this? You catch this? In a way that it's more than admire, I'm inspired by my brother, who has become a father to the fatherless. And his wife Sarah, my sister-in-law, it's just kind of expanded now. She had a number of gay friends and neighbors and... Um, and she said, how can I get involved in their lives and actually pour my love into people who were kind of abandoned, who were suffering with AIDS? And so she actually, this past year, visited a hospice in San Francisco for folks who were in the final stages of AIDS. And she was like, Tim, it's unbelievable. It's like walking into a morgue. It's underfunded by the state. This is where people, uh, AIDS victims, go to die. And, and so she actually began visiting the men there in the AIDS hospice by her house. And this is a picture of of my sister-in-law, Sarah, with her friend, Bill, who is in the final stages of AIDS and cancer. And he is also a follower of Jesus the Christ. And uh, my sister, Sarah, goes there every week, and now they started calling her Saint Sarah uh, because she comes, and she comes with her, her iPod, and she plays Beatles music and everything, and she serves communion, and she reads the Bible. And in many ways, my sister-in-law is becoming a mother to the motherless at the most vulnerable moment in their lives. And, and it's, it's amazing to watch as so much of this is the result of hardship, the pain of infertility. And God's using their hardship to change and impact the lives of so many people. When I asked their permission this week to share their story with you, Sarah wrote this. She said this uh, in, in an email. She said, after I'd found out that we couldn't have kids, I thought, what will I do with all the love that I had in my heart for that child that I can't have? I prayed and begged God that he would take me to the place where people who needed the most love were. And Laguna Honda is the hospital for the city's poor and for those who are dying or in need of long-term care. I realized then that God had answered my prayer. And then she wrote something that I think is just very honest she said, my joy in serving at the hospital doesn't mean I'm completely over not being able to have kids. She said, a lot of our friends have kids, and, and though we've accepted our situation for the most part, sometimes it's hard to be around them. Some days it can be just a mom talking about her son or seeing a family in the parking lot that makes my heart sink. Now listen, she says, however, I don't grieve without hope. And I'm reminded that life here is short, after all. And there's much work to be done in the Lord. I'm realizing, too, what a blessing and honor it is to be a mother to the motherless. I've been experiencing the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes when God doesn't answer our prayer, he uses us to become 
the answer to someone else's prayer. This is part of what it means to suffer well. To suffer in the name of Christ. And say, use my my hardship for a greater purpose. In in Philippians 1, Paul wrote this. He said, For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to what? Also to, uh, to suffer for Him. And this is the problem, folks. We get the believe part. I believe in Jesus. Okay, He did this for me. I believe. But to suffer for Him? To go through something? And use my hardship, my suffering to bless other people? What? And yet this is the essence of faith. When we invite God to use our brokenness as a source of healing in the lives of people who need it even more. The very thing that threatened to take us under, in this case, in my brother's case, the the pain of a miscarriage and infertility just becomes this overwhelming source of comfort and blessing in other people's lives. I mean, I think of my brother. I mean, he's a, he's a father to the fatherless on the streets of San Francisco. <laughs> my sister Sarah is a mother to the motherless. Those spending their final hours in, in an AIDS hospice, and they tell me, and I believe them, it's the greatest privilege of our life. And it brings us such joy. That's that word. That's how Paul saw his stint in prison. That what he was going through was serving a larger purpose in God's story. He was helping found and grow the Philippian church. He was their father. And he knew that his chains were actually just part of, the, of God illustrating the gospel to these people so you and I would learn. <laughs> Humility and hardship. Learning that to suffer is to serve. That's the essence, folks, of a cross Centered life. Cross-centered life. So here in chapter 2, Paul writes this. Pick up with me here at verse 12. I'm sorry, I get really upset here. I'm going to use this cloth napkin. Whoa! Sorry. Nuts to cloth napkins. Oh well. We'll use that for communion later. He writes this. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my present, but also much more in my absence, he says, continue to work out your salvation with what? With... Fear and trembling. This isn't going to be easy. It may get a bit scary, but it's God who works in you to will and to act according to His what? His good purpose. In other words, God has a good purpose that literally what you're going through. Do you believe that? It's actually, can you imagine being part of His larger work of healing and bringing life to a hurting world? That your suffering plays a part in that just as surely as Jesus' did. He says, do everything without complaining or arguing. That's our natural reaction to pain or hardship, right? I mean, we complain, we kind of argue or kick against it. It's just human nature, Paul says. So that you may become blameless and pure. I'm on verse 15. Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. I love this picture that Paul gives. 
He says that your life may shine like stars in a dark universe. In other words, he's like, there's something beautiful, there's something noteworthy about a life that glistens with Christ, that empties itself to actually serve other people in Jesus' name. And it blazes against the dark backdrop of selfishness and despair that permeates the majority of our world. In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. Paul's always comparing his journey to a race. He's like, this is a battle. I'm competing for a prize. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. There's highs and lows, and I've come to a very tough part of it right now. Verse 17, But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, he says, I am what I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And this is fascinating. Because when Paul calls himself a drink offering, he's actually referring to a Jewish tradition. He's referring really to the death sentence that he may receive, okay? Because at this point, he's awaiting trial, and he may live, he may die, he may get the thumbs down and actually get his head cut off. That may happen here. And so when he says, I'm being poured out with a, like a drink offering, here's what he means. In the Jewish system, the priests, whenever they offered a sacrifice, a ram, a bull, a lamb, whatever it was, a burnt offering, at the very end, they would pour wine over the entire sacrifice. Not a drop wasted. Pour wine over the entire sacrifice that symbolized the dedication of the entire life of the believer to God in worship. This is for you, God. And in a similar way, Paul is saying, I am being poured out like a drink offering. This is my life. And there's a hand behind it pouring me out, even though my life is ebbing away to the very brim. But notice, not a drop is wasted. This is fascinating. Because Paul doesn't say, uh, my life is being spilled out. My life is kind of splashing over the edges as a waste. Now I'm really doing it. Oh my goodness. He says, it's being poured out. He's using me. Jesus is now using me. My life is becoming a source of healing and blessing to other people. That's Jesus pouring me out. My life, my service is a sacrifice to God. So even in death, Paul's like, rejoice. He's using my suffering for his glory. And I think that's fascinating that he uses that word poured out because so many of us assume that literally when we go through suffering, this is a waste. This is really, you know, I'm spilling all over the place. It just seems totally random. And it's so, such a contrast to our worldly notion of suffering that seems random. That's what our world says. What you're going through is pointless. Your pain's random. But Paul says, don't waste your pain. Don't waste a drop of it. Let God use it powerfully in the lives of others for outrageous good. Let him pour you out, but don't waste a drop of your suffering. Just as every drop of blood was used from Christ's suffering to pay for your salvation, use me, God. Have you ever felt that way? That, 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 that your life was being spilled or wasted? That's actually how my sister-in-law felt. She said to me when she first learned about infertility. But in God's economy, nothing's by chance. And he literally, Paul says, wants to pour us out and use us to bring the life and the love of Christ into the lives of other people. 
He wants to pour you out. Think about that. But here's the deal. When we don't resist that, guys, and we embrace our challenges as a chance for God to act in a new way, everything changes and nothing may change. In other words, externally, nothing may change externally, but inwardly, everything changes. Everything changes. And the test that we're going through becomes a testimony, to use Pastor Dave's terminology, of what God can do. He can work all things for good in the lives of those who what? Who love him and trust him. That's why Paul writes this. He says, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, I'm glad and what? Everyone read it together. And rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. In other words, folks, through the cross, my brother and sister, they can't have children. But through the cross, and because of the cross, because Jesus living through my brother and sister... There is now a generation of street children in San Francisco who will know Christ because he poured out his love through their hardship. Can you drink the cup? That's what Jesus is saying. There's a host of AIDS victims lying in hospital beds who will meet Jesus for the first time as they look into the face of my sister-in-law as she pours out her life and serves them in the name of Christ. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. That's why I'm getting upset here. Because brokenness can be beautiful when it is filtered through the cross. The cross changes everything. How we see our hardship, what we do with our pain, it says, God, don't waste one single drop of what I'm going through. And again, I don't know what you're going through. But maybe more significant than the struggle that you are facing is a question, what are you going to do with the hardship that you face? Honestly, I find that most believers respond in suffering in one of three ways. Option A would be this. Sometimes we minimize the pain and the fact that we're really, you know, that, that actually it's, it's really hurting. So we put on we kind of a plastic smile, grin and bear it. No, everything is good. Go Jesus. You know, you've kind of seen Christians like that. Option B, other times we try to control it with kind of coping mechanisms. So, you know, we read a book or see a specialist or pray a certain prayer. And that's fine, but it's not a solution. And then there's option C. There are some of us who actually just become very bitter and angry because of what's happened. I mean, that was right on the doorstep of my brother and sister when they first learned they couldn't have kids. Right on the doorstep. Bitterness, anger with God. My question is, how do you deal with the painful experiences in your life? Because Paul's like, I choose option D, other. I choose the cross. I am inviting God to redeem my suffering and use it for an eternal purpose. And consequently, in the midst of the, of the broken mess of my life, I've found great joy. It's like wine. Cheers. They go great together. What? My brother and sister-in-law discovered option D. And it didn't come automatic. It doesn't doesn't come overnight. But if we ask God to use our hardship to bless others, He will. He will. Because only He has the power to take something that was designed to destroy us. I mean, that's what a cross is. And to the very thing that saves us. I mean, think about this. You guys know what the cross is? This is literally a Roman execution 
device. It was used for capital punishment in first century Rome. It was the symbol that the worst of the world has to offer. It wasn't just used to torture and kill somebody. It was used to actually shame them. And, just... and through God's power, it becomes a life-saving device. It becomes literally the symbol of hope to hundreds of millions of people and the source of our salvation eternally. That's why Paul can write, Be glad! Rejoice with me! We are living this cross-centered life together. And even when life crushes you, even when things break down, rejoice because then you're in a position to be poured out, not spilled, not a single drop of your grief will be wasted. Can you drink the cup that I drink, says Jesus? Come and sup with me, my table. You know what Paul did? Paul went like this. Bring it. Use me. He drank. He drank deeply. And that's what informed these words that he wrote on parchment in prison that you hold in your hand. The cross. If you're suffering, if, if, if you're not suffering, here's news, you will. <laughs> That's not, you know, good news. And it's okay, because this may be the season when the crucified Christ becomes most alive to you. I, I wanted to close today by giving you a picture of what togetherness and suffering looks like in the real world. I really could think of no better example than the uh, story of Dick Hoyt and his son Rick, who together have trekked over 3,700 miles across America. Paphrodites went about 800 miles. These guys have gone almost 4,000. And that's kind of astounding when you consider that Rick Hoyt is unable to walk or talk because of a tragedy that happened at his birth. You talk about hardship. Your boy... Your son is born unable to communicate or even walk, but that didn't stop his dad. And with his dad just kind of running on sheer heart and Rick providing the joy, you'll see it in his face, together they formed Team Hoyt, which gives new meaning to the phrase, carry each other's burdens.
you're not alone. God has given us Christ, and you don't have to run alone. That's why he's given us his church. Whatever you are going through, because God is your loving Father and His Son Jesus gave His life for you, you can have hope. You can know joy. When one part of the body suffers, we get to carry each other. And together, we are the face of Christ. And we walk in Christ's footsteps and serve in His name. Amen? You say amen? Yeah. Who has God put in your path? This week, I want you to think about that. When you encounter someone in your world, don't just offer easy answers or solutions. Offer yourself. Be Christ to them as Christ offered himself to you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. I thank you that you are redeeming our pain. and You are even retelling the power of the cross in our lives. It's hard. It hurts. But I pray for every man and woman Lord, who entered today feeling hopeless, that you would pour out hope through your Holy Spirit, Father. Come right on them right now. In this moment, Father, if this is your moment, you want Christ, all heads are bowed everywhere, you want Christ to use your life, use your struggle for something good. Just shoot up your hand. Shoot up your hand. Say, God, see me. See these hands, Father. See people who are raising their hands as a way of saying, Jesus, use my pain. Jesus, use my life. I want to be a living sacrifice to you. God sees you right now. Father, use them. Use them to light this sin-darkened world, Father, in a way that only you will receive credit for because it's powerful. I pray for healing in our people. I pray for steadfastness, perseverance now, Lord, and hope through your cross. It's in the name and the resurrection power of Jesus Christ we pray these things. And all God's people said together, amen.